Hello there. Hello there. There was a strange buzzing on the line, and then I realized that my space heater was still turned on. And then I turned it off, and the strange buzzing went away. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I had... Uh, um, I, I was uh, as I was waiting for you. Usually, I'm the one who's a little bit late. I mean, that's my thing. That's nice um, of you to say that. You, you're welcome. And today, you were you were a couple minutes late. So I was I was rocking out to um, some old Smashing Pumpkins. So there was a buzzing on my end as well, but the buzz was thrashing guitars from the 19 um, I don't know 1990s, I guess. Is that is that what that buzzing was? It was. It was some buzzing. I was rocking out to some some Pisces Iscariot, um, which was a, uh, uh, I think a set of B sides that they they put together, Smashing Pumpkins. And my favorite song from that is called Frail and Bedazzled. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I I uh, it's it's fitting here. Let me let me show you how I'm going to bring this back in um, because I, uh, I it's been cold here in North Carolina. So cold that I had to break up my fleece last week. Ooh. And yeah, and I noticed that the fleece that my children sometimes use as a as a blanket had some bedazzling on it. <laughs> there was a bedazzled jewel that one of my one of my kids, I don't know, I'm an unnamed child, uh put on the back of it. So I showed Danny this morning and she said, "Oh, you're very bedazzled." Ah, so that 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 put uh, frail and bedazzled in your uh in your brain. It did. Um, I really like that song. Mm-hmm. So you should check it out. I don't I, know what your, what your thoughts are with the Smashing Pumpkin. You know, I I like their hits. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's all. Yeah. I so I, I don't have any on my uh, in my uh, iTunes music library, but I probably should get some because there are, there are some good Smashing Pumpkin songs, and you know we'll probably get irate emails now from all the Smashing Pumpkin fans out there. But there's also a lot of bad Smashing Pumpkin songs. I, I kind of feel the same way. Uh, I feel about them as I do about uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, yeah, as long as you didn't say Pearl Jam, because you know I have this thing for them. That's, uh, yeah, no comment. That's fine. That's fine. We'll just, uh, as they say, we'll agree to disagree. Fair uh, enough. On that. So I'm sure that you've been uh, really, really pumped up for uh, Beyonce since she uh, released this uh, new album, surprisingly, on Friday last week. Been, I, been rocking out to be. I did. Uh, I did hear that 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 was su- something. She did something surprising. I uh, on the. I think I saw that on the Twitter. On the Twitter, yeah, she blew it up. She blew up Twitter. <laughs> oh, oh, that would explain uh, why my Twitter wasn't working. Yeah, she broke. She broke it um, by apparently. This is this is what I gleaned from the Twitter about Beyonce. She got bored, so she decided to put out an album and not tell anybody about it. And then it it sold like eight hundred thousand copies in in negative four seconds, and uh, she blew up the Twitter. Wow! And, and I, I'm reminded of this because I'm looking at iTunes right now, and the featured area where we should see food safety talk is all Beyonce, Beyonce exclusive visual album, Beyonce exclusive visual album. That's I guess what it's called. I don't know. Oh, now, see Ben, we were just about to make it big, and then and then Beyonce. Yeah, just screwed us. Screwed us. Yeah, damn you, Beyonce. <laughs> uh, so I'm fired up. I told you we we and I had exchanged some texts this morning, and I'm like, uh, I don't know what's had a good good night's sleep, nice relaxing weekend, hanging out with the the kids, and uh, got we got lots of stuff to talk about. And I'm just I'm pumped. I miss I miss you, Don. 
Uh, of course, <laughs> I miss you too, Ben. And just a just a little real time follow up. Um, apparently, um, in, in uh, as as reported in the New York Daily News, um, her album release surpassed Sharknado in social media buzz. <laughs> well, I, so I, I guess you could say she's jumped the Sharknado. <laughs> oh, I, I wish we had a I wish we had a, a drop that I could put in there, but. I'm, <laughs> Hey, Don Safner, I'll be here all week. <laughs> That's, I'm, we need a drop like that. Yes, uh, that would be good. So, yeah, hey, um, in real time, this is not in the in the news or in the in the show notes of things that we're going to talk about. But I'm going to send you a link that just hit my just hit the airwaves um, about something you might have seen. Something that uh, FDA is going to require manufacturers of antibacterial hand soap and body wash to prove that their products are more effective than plain soap and water in preventing illnesses. Did well, you see this? That's, that's, that's good. That's good that uh, I just had that paper accepted and uh, actually just looked at the galley proofs of our paper uh, that I, that I wrote with uh, uh, funding from American cleaning Institute and with, with some uh, folks in, in that industry as uh, collaborators and co-authors. So uh, it's a good thing our paper's coming out soon. Good stuff. This is like uh hit I mean I didn't know anything about it and it's all of a sudden blown up my my email inbox. Huh. Yeah, just just released this morning. Um some uh it's an FDA rule available for public comment right now and uh what they say in the rule is Millions of Americans use antibacterial hand soap and body wash products. Uh, although consumers generally view these products as effective tools, there is currently no evidence that they are any more effective at preventing illness than washing with plain soap and water. Further, some data suggests that long-term exposure to active ingredients used in antibacterial products, for example, triclosan and uh, triclocarban, uh, could pose health risks such as bacterial resistance or hormonal effects. So there's a proposed rule out there that you might be you might be getting some some calls about. Oh, I wish I wish the FDA uh, would 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 follow my research more closely. Although I guess I can't really fault them because it hasn't actually technically been published yet. But still, they should have followed. Some oh, research. and well, and, and this is this is of course uh, not our good friends at FDA SIFSAN. This yeah. is our our good friends in the, in in air quotes uh, at FDA Cedar, um, who uh, who are. Anyway, I, I don't have as much love for them as I do for our, our many, many fans that work at FDA SIFSAN. Of course, they, they can never say anything bad about the FDA Cedar folks, at least on the record. <laughs> and just for the for the record, I do love the smell of cedar. <laughs> okay. And just to clarify for our listeners, uh, FDA Cedar is, is not the kind of cedar that Ben likes. Uh, FDA Cedar is the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, um, as opposed to FDA SIFSAN, Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. So uh, FDA Cedar uh, regulates basically drugs, um, and FDA SIFSAN basically regulates uh, food. Um, but they do work together, and there's interactions around hand washing on the food code, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, it's good. Uh, so um, uh, it's good that, that uh, our manuscript was just uh, uh, in – well, it's in uh, – I uh, just looked at the galley proof, so so it's it's close uh, it's close to publication. So that would that would be very very helpful, I think, for my my colleagues at um, in the in the um, soap and detergent industry. So um, that, that's probably the reason why they were anxious to push this research along. <laughs> they yeah. they may have known something like this was coming. So yeah. Well, there you go. So that's hot off the press. Good. Well, thanks for sharing that, Ben. It's it it, it gives me makes me happy that we we we're once again doing relevant research at the right time. 
Yeah, well, and that's that's a good thing. That's like the the best thing that can can hit. You may have people who are setting uh, your soon to be published study uh, as part and, and part of the uh, comments for this uh, for this new rule. I would I would hazard a guess that that's going to happen. I think you'd probably be correct. Well, that's exciting. You're at the forefront, Don. I like it. But well, once again, you know, through through a lot of a lot of luck and a little bit of hard work. <laughs> oh, I was on mute. I was not laughing. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to note. I was, I was just on mute. Ah, <laughs> oh, Don. So, uh, so what's going on? Um, it's a cold day in New Jersey. That's. A, I think that's a Springsteen song. <laughs> yes. It's so a cold day. That's uh, actually that might be Creed that I just sang. <laughs> Um, Creed we'll, covering a Springsteen song. Yeah, covering Springsteen. It, it's a cold day in New Jersey is the subtitle for Thunder Road. <laughs> yes, <laughs> widely widely not known and not right. known widely, but <laughs> little little bit of Springsteen uh, uh, talk today. So I put I put uh, I put something in uh, in the show notes uh, far down in the list. But one of my uh, but we'll jump to it right now because it's relevant. One of my one of my new graduate students uh, just started listening to the podcast, and uh, she said she came into my office and she said, "Can I? I listen to your podcast. Can I tell you something?" And I said, "Sure." She said. It takes you guys a very long time to get to the point. <laughs> um, I'd like she expected the show to be about food safety or something. It, maybe the point is I, I'm not not going to – let's not lecture your graduate student on this. But. <laughs> oh, let's. You can. Okay. But maybe the point is it's that, that it takes us um, – it, it, we, we are too quick leaving the point to go to food safety. <laughs> the other guy should talk more. The other guy should talk less. It needs to be longer. It needs to be shorter. It needs to have more food safety content and less food safety content, Ben. And uh, let's add the last bullet um, to the uh, our twenty-three point plan to um, uh, get to the point quicker and and take longer and take longer to get to the point. Uh, we we're all about the point. Oh, it's just going to be, you know what? I think my entire goal today is just to give uh, a litany of show title uh, options. Everything I say is going to be fairly out of context. and <laughs> But would be a great show title. Be a great show. Yeah, exactly. Just the point is, <laughs> is where we should go next. Um, so there's there's lots going on. Um uh, I was going to tell you about some follow-up stuff, and you have some follow-ups up stuff. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to um, – no, that's what I want to do. I want to go to follow-up. Okay. So um, do you want to go first? Uh, you can go first. Okay. So I have to say uh, thanks. Well, so first of all, apparently people listen to our show. Which is which is very gratifying. People we don't know uh, listen to our show, and they pay they pay careful attention to our show. So um, this is follow up uh, that we received from 
uh, Cheryl Deem, who's the executive director of the American Spice Trade Association. And she, um, uh, she, she, she writes to us, I uh, got a chance to hear the spot on the spice industry and would welcome the opportunity to share the steps we've been taking for the past three years to make sure the industry is doing the right thing, including uh, guidance for industry that we work with FDA on. Um, and, 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 and that's fine. Um, cause we kind of, we kind of based on not very much evidence, Ben, uh, we bashed the spice industry. Wow. And, but that's good though, because it, 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 what, what that means is that Cheryl reached out to us and now we actually have, uh, I think something important to talk about. And, and so basically we were talking about a New York Times article where they, they interviewed, uh, or they, they attempted to interview John Halligan, um, regarding the draft risk profile for spices that FDA released. And, and you and I made the op, offhand comment that apparently the Spice Trade Association had not bothered to read it. Um, in fact, we're going to switch from um, poking the Spice Association and irritating them to changing gears and, and poking our friends at the FDA. And I know we have... Um, a number of people that listen to the podcast, uh, or at least that follow us on various social media that are uh, with the FDA, and so now we're gonna, we're going to switch gears and we're going to poke at them for a little bit. So, turns out um, the FDA gave the draft risk profile to the New York Times, and and then a couple of people we won't name names here, but a couple of people from the FDA spoke with the Times, the New York Times, uh, the day before the FDA released the draft risk profile to the spice industry. So, and then the New York times, of course, being good, good journalists, and we can, we can bash them a little bit too, because I'm sure they don't listen. Um, they, um, asked the spice industry for comment and legitimately the spice industry said, well, we haven't read it yet. It's a 200 page document. And obviously the, the FDA saw fit to give it to the times, but not to the spice industry. And so they legitimately, hadn't read it because it hadn't been given to them yet. So, so I think, I think we need to, instead of, uh, of changing our admonishment to the spice industry, we ought to change the admonishment to the FDA. Um, and maybe to the New York times a little bit too. I mean, so you give something to, and I understand, you know, the way this works with the, and you probably understand better than me, how this works. You give something to the news media, you say it's embargoed until a certain date. Uh, and that way the media has time to work on their stories, et cetera, et cetera, before, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the press release that comes from the FDA. And then the New York times immediately has, um, you know, a story ready because they've, they've had this access to this embargoed document, but it seems to me you ought to do the same thing for the spice industry, especially if the New York Times is going to be calling the spice industry. And, and again, the, new, the way the way the Times set this up, they kind of they kind of implied, or at least they wrote it in such a way that I got the impression that the spice industry, you know, just hadn't gotten around to reading the document yet. And then there was some comment about, um, uh, but the the industry says something like, in the past, the industry has said that spices are not a risk because People cook, you know, they're usually cooked in food or some, something that made the, the people in the spice industry look like bozos, which really was was not not true, or at least was was not. It was a bit. I I, I took it in a way that uh, I think misrepresented the spice industry. So so Cheryl uh, reached out to us by email. 
we had a nice uh, long email exchange, and she sent us um, in the, in at the end of all of that a very a very very detailed email message, um, uh, looking looking basically summarizing everything uh, everything that, that they've that they've done. Um, so I don't know what's your what's your reaction to this whole thing. Well, I, first uh, uh, let me echo your. Um your thanks to Cheryl for reaching out. I mean, I I don't get the sense that we bash people, but um, I, you know, I, I think the goal of the of the podcast all along is uh, for us to to generate dialogue, and it's really awesome when when people who are listening want to jump in and say, "Hey, you guys got to you know, you don't you didn't have the whole story here. Here's what what happened." And I, I you know, I thank Cheryl for for doing that. Um, and giving us some more to, to talk about about the whole process, um, and, and so I mean that's my my first take, and I I, I think it's it's pretty um, uh, pretty shifty for you know if, if things went down uh, with FDA and New York Times like uh, like Cheryl had uh, passed on to us to to release this information and let someone write a story on it, not give. Um, the industry the same uh, same time to review the document and come up with um, with a structured response or uh, being able to um, to know exactly what they're being you know essentially accused of uh, before the the document was uh, published I, I think that's pretty pretty shifty I, I would I would say though um, that Cheryl uh, shared with us some some stuff that we'll link to uh, in in the show notes, a couple of press releases, and then this really nice document um, from the American Spice Trade Association on clean, safe spices. So, had I been in, um, you know, I hate to be in, you know, you know, core, armchair quarterbacking this, but I think I probably would have shared this ASTA document with the New York Times. And said, we don't know what's in there, and we kind of it kind of sucks that you get to see what the document looks like, and we haven't seen it, and you're asking questions about it. But way back in 2011, um, in response to some concerns that have that popped up within our industry, we put together this document of best practices, um, going back to good agricultural practices all the way through to um, to storage and, and transport on um, on spices, even uh, talking about uh, product and environmental testing. And and I would have, I mean, if I was in the in um, the Spice Trade Association's shoes, I would have pulled some quotes out from that and said, "Look, we haven't had a chance, but here's what we do." Um, and please come back to us um, as soon as we get this document. We'd be happy to tell you more about it. And I know, I mean, um, so this all goes down in a short amount of time, and, and the timeline uh, for this um, uh, for this uh, discussion was it was published this paper, this paper, this. Uh, uh, story was published on October 30th, and on the 31st, the um, ASTA put out a and Cheryl put out a a, a nice press release, um, a, an actual statement on it um, right away. Uh, when they did have a chance to to go, which had a lot of the discussion stuff that I, that I just mentioned, um, but but to be able to have some of that stuff ready to go right away, and then to to insert it into the, to the story would have been um, kind of a nice uh, you know nice thing to. Um, to have ready, ready out there, and and I guess I, I don't know. I, I, you know, this is me getting all cynical and um, and, and talking with uh, with Doug. We we are we're working on a, uh, a a paper on using social media when it, when it comes to food safety messaging. I think the world of press releases are are uh, you know hit. Uh, they're almost over. I mean, I almost would have had some. 
um, social media presence right away uh, from ASTA saying, we don't know what's in here and here's what we're doing anyway. And, and, and then having that dialogue as opposed to going through the sort of traditional route of, of press release, because we, you and I had this conversation after this, this story came out. And in fact, the ASTA press release was out already when we had, when we had our conversation on this. Um, but we didn't find it. We didn't, you know, none of us kind of came across it. So, so it has to do with, with reach of, of our traditional messaging that, that I think we can, we can all improve on and not, I mean, again, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to bash anybody on this and I don't, I hope that's not where we're, what you and I are coming across as. I think what we're trying to do is have this discussion of, um, what we see and what could have gone on, uh, differently. And it turns out, as, as Cheryl mentioned, the, the Spice Trade Association's got is doing a lot of stuff, um, and it has a nice reference document on guidelines. What would what would be really nice um, to complete this whole story is to say not just what our guidelines are and what we're trying to employ, but how we're measuring that internally, and how we're um, how uh, you know how our our members are actually implementing these guidelines. So. So that's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I just thank Cheryl for, um, for being able to, to jump back in and not sort of turn us, turn us off as, uh, in, in Don's words, the couple of bozos on food safety talk don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Did I say that? No, you called somebody else bozo. <laughs> okay. But yeah, and, you know, and this, as you were talking, it reminded me of something that, I, that I've heard you and, and Doug both say over and over again, which is tell me, don't tell me your f- product is safe. Tell me what you're doing to make it safe. And American Spice Trade Association has a story, right? Absolutely. I mean, they have a guidance document. As you said, they can talk about um, the, the level of implementation of this guidance. Um, I mean, the, the, number one, uh, the number one bullet point in uh, the Clean Safe Spices document um, is minimize the risk for introduction of filth throughout the supply chain, right? So, so, so that's – and they said that's what the New York Times reporter had called to talk about was, was indeed um, – uh, filth. So, so if you have a story to tell, tell a story, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, which, which I guess they did. They just they didn't do it. They didn't do it in the in the initial New York Times story. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, part of the story. I mean, the industry and regulators, the industry hates to throw the regulators under the bus, but it sounds like in this case, the regulators did a pretty good job of throwing them under the bus. I would have gone back and told that story and say, look. It's not that we don't have a comment. It's that we haven't seen it because no one's given it to us, but they've clearly given it to you. And being that we're the regulated industry, it would be nice to see that piece of information before it goes um, before it goes public or, or we're going to be caught with our pants down or our hand in the cookie jar or whatever cliche you want to use on this. Um, and and not, I, I just, I, you know, maybe I'm too uh, uh, confrontational. Uh, sometimes when it comes to this stuff, and I don't have to worry about how I get on with the uh, with that relationship between regulator and regulated industry. But but it seems to me like um, that there was some under bus throwing, and someone could have called them out on that right away, um, as opposed to um, you know. And I'm happy that we're doing it now, but it but it could have been it could have been there. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. But, but again, I just want to say thanks. I mean, to, again, to, to me, the, the whole thing is it's just gratifying that, that people that are, are making a difference and are doing stuff um, to make food safer are actually listening and paying attention to our podcast. That, that, that kind of blows my mind still. 
Yeah, and and that I mean, to, not to belabor this point with Cheryl, but but I mean, really, thank you for for letting us talk about this again. For for you know, for anybody who who does listen to the podcast and thinks that that we don't get it right because we don't get it right all the time, or yeah, I don't I don't even want to put a value on a percentage of the time. We're just two guys who read some stuff and want to talk with each other about it. And if we get it, if there's more to the story, we want people to be part of this. Um, and either that's by sending us stuff or, you know, as our, our initial conversation with Cheryl was, um, how can we engage with you on this? Is this something that you want to come on? Do you want to give us some more information? Um, you know, I, I think that's part of what, what we're trying to accomplish here. So, um, so, so thanks again for, uh, for letting us, um, giving us some more information so we could talk about it further. Absolutely. So did you did you have some follow up on uh, our our favorite uh, our favorite podcast topic of, of Pruno? It's I, I believe it's a it's a holiday um, it's a holiday cocktail. Uh, <laughs> it's something. It's something. Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's like gingerbread punch um, with with botulism. Botulism. So I do. I've got some some follow up. We actually talked about this um, back in, in FST 27 and again in FST 46, um, about, um, this, uh, this product products, probably not the right word, this drink that is, um, made, uh, in, in places where you can't get alcohol. And one of those places, uh, where this is made, uh, quite a bit, uh, known as prison hooch, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, something uh, called pruno, which is a, a, a method of fermenting um, fruit uh, to make alcohol. Uh, because I, I can only imagine I've not spent any time in, in prison or jail, or uh, my experience has really been watching hit, hit or miss episodes of Oz, uh, as well as um, Orange is the New Black. It doesn't seem like a great place. It seems like um, you might look for vices and diversions to keep you, uh, from thinking that you are in, uh, jail and detained and, and have, you know, your freedoms are no longer yours. So you might try and get some alcohol or other, um, uh, other, uh, substances. And so, um, it goes back a long time, uh, from, from what I can gather in the history of people who've been making Pruno or, or, or prison hooch for, for a long time. And, and basically the idea is you take some sort of fruit, um, that you have acquired through the lunch line or other ways and you, um, do something with it, uh, which put, you know, put it into a bag or into a jar and you let it sit there and let the, um, uh, yeasts uh, do their thing that that hopefully are naturally occurring uh, there and ferment it and then drink the alcohol afterwards. And so why we're talking about this in follow-up is because we've mentioned this stuff a couple of times. And in fact, one outbreak that happened back in 2011 um, uh, associated with uh, a Utah prison. Um, and uh, the, there was a paper that was published this week uh, with the sort of entire epidemiological study because it was covered in um, MMWR uh, back a, a while ago, but this sort of had everything. Um, it had it, it, it had everything. It had uh, potatoes. It had fermentation. It had botulism. This place is is great. Um, and uh, what what was in the paper was the actual recipe. So so in this well, and and Ben, let's just clarify for the listeners at home. Um, while we may call it a recipe. <laughs> we don't. We don't advise that anyone actually use this recipe to try to make pruno, <laughs> unless unless you're trying to grow bot. 
Exactly. Unless you're trying to grow, grow bot. So in this, in, in this uh, recipe, as, it, uh, as it's called, um, th- this is kind of the interesting part of it. So um, there were 12 people that drank Pruno that was made by one guy. And the one guy had made Pruno, according to the paper, dozens of times before. He um, was, I guess, the amateur fermenter, amateur microbiologist uh, in, the, in the prison. And this time, the biggest change was uh, he made one batch that was just fruit. And then he, he grabbed uh, some old baked potatoes and um, added that into the mix. Um, and the quote in the paper was he was doing it um, really as an experimentation. He thought that the added uh, starch in the, um, you know, the added carbs in the, in, in the uh, potato would speed up fermentation and he was doing it as, quote, an experiment. Well, um, uh, eight of the people that, uh, that drank the second batch of this Pruno uh, w- with the potato got, uh, got botulism and ended up... Uh, um, you know, requiring CDC to come in with antitoxin. It was, and it was a bit of a, a mess. But anyway, uh, without further ado, here is the quote recipe that was used that was published in the paper. Um, and, and think of this as a bulleted list like you would see in a, in a cooking book or a recipe book. Uh, bullet one, one two-week-old baked potato stored in a closed jar, then cleaned with soap and water. Four skinned grapefruits rinsed before peeling. For sanitation. Rinsed. 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 Um, Let the record show they were rinsed. (laughs) Well, it's – I mean it's a process, Don. Yeah, it's good. This is – I wouldn't call that a critical control point. um, But But it it shows an attention to detail and safety. It does. Four four canned oranges also rinsed before peeling. I don't know what a canned orange – we'll talk about that one in a second. Four peeled fresh oranges – Four canned pears, four canned peaches, four cups of water, two 12-ounce packages of powdered juice mix. And then the process is mix these ingredients together, store in a plastic sealed bag, and let ferment for seven days. And then you got some fruit. I, f- I feel like that there ought to be a holiday song in here, um, you know, like the, the 12 days of uh, Pruno prison Christmas or something. Excellent. It's. I think it might be a Roderick song. I think it might be. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, it's quite a. It's quite a recipe. I mean, this is a. Um, we've talked about Pruno, and and I know one of our colleagues, and I don't think he's a listener to the show, but he's a friend of ours on Facebook. Randy Warbo has has been involved with some of the. Um, the Pruno-related outbreaks, and I don't know um, what the recipes are that, that he's had a chance to look at, but this was the most detailed step uh, you know, that, I, that I've seen. And, and uh, so, so what? And I, I posted about this on Barf Blog um, last week. What, what kind of happens in this? You know, the first batch that was made without the big potato, um, you know, likely has a pH low enough to suppress the um, uh, the germination of those uh, Clostridium botulinum spores and the outgrowth into vegetative cells, and then once you once the the individual the fermenter the brewmaster uh, in fact um, added in the baked potato, um, that 
changes everything when it comes to the to the pH, and it uh, probably got uh, uh, into a level where, or I mean, obviously based on the um, the illnesses and the toxin that was recovered from, it got into a, a pH area where um, where the Clostridium botulinum could uh, could move out uh, from those. Um, go from those uh spores into vegetative cells. So um you know that that's the so so the the lesson I guess to take to take away from this for those who do listen to us who are in the the world of pruno making um is don't don't use potatoes um if you're going to do that. But but as Don mentioned we're not in the uh we're not in the recipe uh, recommending uh, business so much anyway, so it's probably not a, it's probably not a good idea to do any of this uh, pruno making at all. Well, and in and in fact, it's a, it's a one two week old baked potato stored in a closed jar. Um, so that's a problem right there, right? I mean, we know uh, from past outbreaks that baked potatoes can be a source of botulism just by themselves. In fact, I would suspect, based on everything else in that recipe, that's all pretty low pH. So it may have been that, in fact, there was no botulism formation in the pruno at all. It was just simply a, a quite a, a highly toxic baked potato, right? So, so two-week-old baked potato, that's more than enough time to get sufficient botoxin to make a whole bunch of people sick when you mix that potato with all this other stuff. Yeah, especially if you're putting that baked potato, you're going to um, put it in the in the closed jar. You know, it's 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 different from um, just a baked potato that's sitting there, um, you know, growing vegetative cells. But you know that that you're right. That could have been the um, the step here that, that led to um, to the toxin, and then all that got added in. Um, was you know once they drop that potato that had all the toxin in it, you're just at you're just it's just a um, no you know no, no more um, botulisms or uh, botoxins being formed. And uh, and and you know and and two we have to say that that the uh, the recipe uh, was provided by patient four um, who was one of the people who by by virtue of his name patient four is one of the victims of this so this guy uh, this guy dosed himself with uh, with botulism so he uh, you know he um, this wasn't this wasn't uh, malicious at all he really thought that he was you know making a. a uh, a, a novel uh, product with uh, uh, accelerated fermentation, but apparently not so much. Absolutely. Hey, so you know what it's time for, Ben? Uh, what time is it? It's <laughs> it's time it's time for that special segment. It is. It's I I wanted to be like uh, I don't know what time is it, Don? It's formerly bug trivia but now known as the history of IAFP time it just rolls right off the tongue doesn't it yep um so let me let me do some i, I think usually i do like a uh you know pantera cannibal corpse heavy guitar but i'm thinking today i might do um for the festive season some handbells um I'm, so i'm ready ding 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 it's the history of IAFP <laughs> that was fantastic. So we are we are up to the 1970s. We are, and uh, this is uh, this is uh, an article that was written for food. Pro- we're uh, going to be excerpting from an article that was written for Food Protection Friends by uh, our friend and, and friend of the podcast. I think I think he listens, Manan Sharma, who works at the U.S. Um, uh, DA um, there in Maryland doing uh, food safety research. And uh, so again, like I said, he's writing about the 1970s, and he's writing specifically about um, the uh, 
the journal, uh, in, in particular, what was at the start of the 1970s called <clears throat> the Journal of Milk and Food Technology which by the end of the 1970s became the Journal of Food Protection. And in fact, the Journal of Food Protection is still IAFP's flagship journal. And in fact, the changing of the name of the journal from the Journal of Milk and Food Technology or the Journal of Food Protection in the 1970s sort of foreshadowed the eventual change of the name of the association uh, from the, the International Association of Milk, Food, and Environmental Sanitarians to the International Association for Food Protection. But that did not actually happen happen until uh, two decades later. So again, uh, what uh, Manon writes in his article is that uh, during this decade, the articles in uh, Journal of Milk and Food Technology reflected society's attitudes towards food consumption, food safety, and environmental trends. Articles in the journal focused on microwave oven technology. It focused on some of the first uh, description and application of, of HACCP, that is the Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Points uh, System for Food Safety. And, and uh, the, the uh, articles in the journal covered a wide variety of topics, a wide variety of food safety topics, not just focusing on dairy products. Um, the, there, there, were a, 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 there still was a heavy dairy focus. They talked about they talked about other foods as well, looking at the survival of Salmonella, Clostridium perfringens, Staph aureus, uh, Vibrio parahemolyticus, uh, looking at um, uh, the shelf life of milk, the microbial shelf life of milk, as well as uh, chemical and, and microbiological changes uh, produced by that. Um, articles, like I said, on, on uh, microwaves and looking at um, uh, information on uh, leakage of microwaves and the potential for microwave ovens to... Uh, uh, to, to injure uh, customers, uh, in, in, injure consumers by virtue of the fact that they're being in their home, um, but also looking at the effect of microwave cooking on foodborne pathogens, a topic that is, that is still important, uh, still important today. Um, uh, also, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do right now in, in the association is to invite more toxicologists to be involved. But we actually have a long history of working on toxicological issues. So, for example, there were articles on uh, DDT that were published in the Journal of Food Protection, um, looking at uh, levels of DDT in milk, among other things. Um, and then, like I said, articles on uh, on HACCP uh, focused on a wide variety of uh, implementations of, of that of that system. So, so again, I think we can see um, you know, even reflecting back, um, you know, decades back in the past, the, the association was, was still, even in the 1970s, was still an active period of change. And uh, again, a lot of the, the issues that were investigated back then have, have come back around and, and continue to be, uh, continue to be important. So, uh, anyway, that's the, uh, that's the 1970s, uh, in the, the, uh, International Association for Food Protection. The 1970s, the, uh, shaggy hair, um, Stadium Rock uh, decade of uh, of IAFP. <laughs> I think that's it should be described. And I have to say too, since we're uh, since we're talking about the 1970s, um, and and we're we're you know we're always slow to get to the point. Um, thanks, Anne, for pointing that out to us. Um, uh, that uh, I, I want to talk about something a present a birthday present that I got that I've been reading, and I was talking. It was just shared this a little bit with uh, uh, some some chats with. Uh, uh, text chats with uh, Mike Batts, who I had the opportunity to see in person in uh, in Baltimore at the Society for Risk Analysis annual meeting, and that is um, uh, a uh, a book 
Uh, it's it's a collection of of stories from uh, comic books by one of my uh, favorite comic book artists, Jack Kirby. And I, are you are you familiar? Do you know who Jack Kirby is? Uh, I'm gonna guess on this. I, I think he, like did he did he write storylines for Superman? He did. He did. Um, that's very good. So if he worked. So for a long time, um, Jack Kirby worked for Marvel Comics. So he was. The, I think he was a. And he's an artist, primarily known as an artist. And then he, he worked, uh, he wrote for Marvel writing, you know, for Fantastic Four, you know, drawing for Fantastic Four. But then in the early 1970s, in, in, in a move that I still remember as a kid kind of being freaked out by this, like he moved from Marvel Comics to DC Comics. And DC Comics is where, uh, Superman, um, uh, uh, you know, has his, has his home. And, um, he, he created this whole, uh, uh, mythos called the fourth world and uh, and it 's really uh, and, and and those fourth world stories have been collected in a series of books and i 'm just in the in reading right now the fourth world omnibus volume one and so Kirby came up with in a very short period of time he came up with um, the new gods, the forever people, Mr. Miracle, and he also wrote some stories uh, in the uh, what was a comic book at the time uh, around Jimmy Olsen, who was uh, uh, basically uh, superman 's uh, sidekick so um, and, and, in, and he wrote this series of stories that spanned all of these brand new comics. Uh, uh, and this uh, volume one of the Omnibus collects all of these together. And I've just been having a lot of fun kind of reading them um, there. Um, the art is as fantastic as I remember it as a kid. And the stories are, well, let's, so the, the, the stories were, were written by Kirby and illustrated by Kirby. So let's just say that he's a great artist as a writer. He's a great artist. <laughs> hmm. He's a really good artist. He's yeah, as a writer. He's a really good artist. So, again, fantastic. Just still thrilling to to look at. T- to me, it is what comic books look like, right? I mean, this was and this is again, you know, something very formative, um, um, you know, in my in my development, you know, as a, as a kid reading these comic books, and I'm still just thrilled by the look of these comics and the dialogue and the stories are well. Let's just say again, um, <laughs> the the art is beautiful. So. Uh, Anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying reading that very much. So uh, this was very apropos that we are talking about the 1970s uh, in IAFP or uh, IAMFIS because I'm reading comic books from that same era. Well, excellent. Let me for for Anne's benefit. Let me let me bring it back to the point. <laughs> okay. This is this is our new running joke. Um, so uh, to to my, uh, when I was reading through the. Uh, history in the 1970s, I, I really focused on, the, or what struck out, stuck out to me was uh, this idea of microwaves, and um, it, you know all the work that it must have been a really interesting time for the for the microbiologists at that time because they were presented with this new technology, really, um, that was some of it's based on thermal inactivation, but then there's some other stuff going on um, when it goes to the to the microwaves themselves. Um, not the microwave unit, but the actual waves and how that impacts um, uh, the uh, you know pathogens of interest uh, that we have in, in the world of food safety. It actually must have been like fairly groundbreaking stuff um, from a from a journal standpoint because there must you know it, I, I can't think of maybe some of the high pressure stuff that's that's been published in the last few years, but I, I can't think of a uh, a new appliance 
that's been added to people's kitchens, um, quite like um, a microwave oven. Uh, and so there, you know, I, I can imagine there, there were a lot of really um, interesting discussions about uh, uh, that uh, and, and good, um, good research. Microwaves, uh, two, two things kind of stuck in a, in, into my mind um, when I was reading through that. One was um, Danny and I just – we are our, our a microwave oven in our kitchen just crapped out uh, two weeks ago. And so we went and purchased another above the stove microwave um, and installed it ourselves, which is always a, um, an exercise in comedy. Um, when one of us is holding some 70 pound item and the other one is screwing it into the top and good stuff. But um, why this matters is because um, we now have a new microwave that the, our old microwave had the same wattage on the um, on the box. Um, both are thousand watt microwaves, but our new microwave it has so much more activity. Like it just the the technology hasn't decayed yet, and so what used to take us a minute. Um, a good, good example this weekend, I, I microwaved some chicken nuggets for my kids, which my kids, you know, they eat about five things, one of them being chicken nuggets. And I'm kind of a stick stickler about, um, microwaving those frozen chicken items based on a bunch of outbreaks that have happened, um, in the past 10 years, uh, for some of the raw product. And, and I don't, uh, you know, we, we buy the, um, the cooked product, uh, and then I also cook it to, to at least 165 because um, I like that extra level of uh, irrational uh, heat uh, for my kids. And, uh, and I use a thermometer for it. Uh, but anyway, I, I like almost set a chicken nugget on fire uh, last week. Uh, sorry, over the weekend because it used to take uh, – if I put four of them on a plate, I would microwave it for t- two minutes. And then I would temp it and it would be somewhere around uh, 175. Uh, and I would stick the thermometer into lots of different spots. And then uh, about a uh, minute 35 into our cycle, uh, this last week, the first time I microwaved for uh, chicken nuggets, there was smoke uh, that was coming out of our microwave because I toasted those nicely and almost set the, um, the nuggets on fire because it was too much. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I know um – uh, I, I think the, the the magnetrons in those uh, uh, microwaves do decay with time. So if this was one that was in your house and, and you know nineteen seventies vintage, right, um, uh, or, or something, um, it, it might uh, it might indeed have uh, have have not been fully functional. Also, did the old one have a, a, a rotating uh, uh, stand in it? They both they both have a they rotating. They both did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The old one was probably uh, eight years old. Hmm. So- not, I mean, not super old, but I mean, drastically different in the in the ability to heat up small amounts of food, <laughs> like like a popcorn. Um, so I don't know if we we have a super hyped up magnetron or not uh, in the new one, but um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a little 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 bit crazy. Well, that's that's good. That's good to know that it's better. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe it would have been better to uh, kind of sneak up on that temperature rather than go with the old system. Yes, yes, it was uh, a bit of a test, a bit of a, a trial and error on my part. Uh, the the second thing, also having to do with my microwave, is I, as part of the Citizen Food Safety Project, I uh, uh, took a picture of some Trader Joe's mac and cheese that um, was. Uh, 
you know, I was reheating for my, for my sons also, because we do cook things from scratch from, for them, but sometimes not so much. So the, this was the weekend of, um, mac and cheese and, and chicken nuggets. And so I tweeted a picture, uh, of that, um, of that mac and cheese box just with a comment about uh, which Trader Joe's told me what temperature uh, I should cook it to because um, on the uh, on the box itself, um, it gives you a little bit of information um, and I'll just read it here uh, as I pull it up. Um, it says, microwave, remove package from box, uh, puncture holes with fork and plastic film, microwave on high three to four minutes, let stand for one minute, remove film, stir and serve. Cooking times may vary depending on an oven. So the comment that I made on my uh, Instagram uh, and Twitter uh, feed was, my kids love Trader Joe's mac and cheese, which they told me what temperature I microwave to, going with 165. And uh, got some comments uh, on that from uh, someone who follows me on Instagram uh, who works for NSF. And, and so uh, she said, well, wouldn't it be 145? Uh, and I said, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I just use 165 uh, for other stuff with meat. And she said, uh, raw foods, especially poultry and poultry products, due to 165, but commercially processed 145. And that comes out of um, uh, USDA recommendations as well as uh, food code. Uh, but even for mac and cheese, there's hardly any moisture and you're not at risk for botulism and it's not canned. Maybe mycotoxins with cheese if it's a way to pass, way past expiration, ha. But you can cook those, uh, you can't cook those away anyway. So food safety is so fun. And I said, yep, I'm more concerned about the low moisture salmonella, see pot pies, Marie Callender and Totina's pizza all, um, in, in, were potentially flour, um, as, as the source. And she goes, got you. Thanks for the learning experience. I'm two years into my food safety career with NSF. So I wanted to, I put that into the show notes and I wanted to sort of get your take on it. Um, Don, am I, am I being crazy, uh, with, uh, with cooking this stuff to, to 165? Uh, am I being crazy with heating it above 135 even, uh, based on, uh, on what's out there? What's, what do you, what do you think? What do you, what would you do with this, with this product? And, <laughs> So that's question one. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the temp- Trader Joe's tell me something. Well, the, the, the programmer in me wants to ask, um, <clears throat> excuse me, have we closed the parentheses yet on um, food safety history? <laughs> well, sort of. Because <laughs> <laughs> but then, but you haven't done the song. You're right. You're right. Sorry. Okay. Um, so going back to our favorite uh, outdrop uh, for the Christmas time season, it's ding, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, ding, dong, ding, ding, dong. Uh, history of food safety IFP, formerly known as bug trivia. Thanks. Okay. Now I feel better. <laughs> I just was going to bug me the whole episode. <laughs> um, so are you being excessively safe? Probably. Um, but Hey, it's your kids. Um, I would say as long as you don't heat it so hot that, and then make your kids eat it hot. So it burns them. That's what a crazy person would do. Right. But, but as long as you get it, you know, and there's no, there's no, well, I guess there's a little bit of a, I guess theoretically, oh God, that's probably being a scientist. There's, there's always a downside, right? So, I mean, there's a risk of burning your kids if it gets too hot. There's a risk of forming toxigenic toxic compounds from, you know, cooking things. But in the grand, in in the grand scheme of things, Ben, I think it's a relatively safe neuroses to have. (laughs) So I wouldn't, I'm not going to worry about it. Am I, I guess the thing is, 
I don't know the data enough or the literature enough on on the the risk of low moisture salmonella in low moisture foods in something like this. You know, based epidemiologically, looking at the um, those other reheatable non-meat containing outbreaks. I'd even throw the cookie dough in. Wow, cookie dough is a little different because people were just not heating that up at all. But I, I look at the product like this mac and cheese and I think, well, it's not like I'm dry roasting this. There's quite a bit of moisture in there, but there was a lot of moisture in the um, – in, in the uh, uh, other products, the other frozen dinners like the pot pies or the uh, the pizza to, to a lesser sense, but the pot pies and the Marie Calendar ones for sure, the rice, chicken and rice product. Um, so is heating it up above 135 doing much of anything more? Like were, were people that got sick in those outbreaks even getting it up to 100 or 19, you know, 19 or whatever? Getting it to 165 versus 145 probably doesn't reduce my risk or my kids' risk any any more. But but I don't know. I mean, truthfully, I don't know that. Well, and, and you don't know. You're not probing every single spot in that dinner. Um, so, no, I, again, in, 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 the, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's, it's not a bad practice. And, God, you'd hate to do, especially anybody would hate to make their kids sick, but especially a food safety expert would hate to make their kids sick. And we know, we know these products do, do have a risk. I mean, I think the last time we talked about it, I think I might have shared the story about my, my son might have, you know, had one of these products and, and, and not fully reheated it and, and maybe gotten some food poisoning because of it. Because, but again, we never, uh, we never know. So, but no, I mean, I think uh, probably that's a reasonable precaution. I think a, another thing you can do too, and maybe your kids are a little bit too young for this is, is, you know, and I'm sure you're doing this anyway, but teach them. I mean, micro, the thing about microwave foods is that it's a very easy food for a kid to prepare for themselves. So someday your kids are going to be making these things for themselves. Um, maybe, you know, maybe in not too many years. And so you want to make sure that when they do that, that they understand the risks and they understand how to use the microwave safely, not overheating the food. So they burn their mouths, but not underheating the food. So there's a food safety risk. So, but no, I think you're setting a good example. Well, I hope so. My wife, um, you know, beyond her belief that the show is only listened by shut-ins, um, also thinks I'm a little bit crazy on this one. Um, but I, I mean, I figure there's enough data out there that, that sort of says this is something you get to, I, I can reduce, I can actually control some risk here in our kitchen and let me do, let me do my part to, uh, to do so well, and I guess the, the the real important question with all of this, which is going to which will segue into the the point that that I want to make next, is did Trader and I, and I think I responded to your tweet, and I I cc tra- Trader Joe's, and and I think you did too on an, another related tweet. Um, any response from them? No, and yeah. any response from them? So, and, and it's actually more systemic than that. Um, so, I this <laughs> this is the fun part of. Uh, you know, trying to engage with people on social media. So I, I assume that Trader Joe's is this big organization and that Trader at Trader Joe's would be their Twitter handle. It's not. And in fact, they have an official Twitter handle, which is Trader Joe's 2. The at Trader Joe's handle has been suspended for some reason, but they actually don't have someone who does social media. The, and in fact, it's part of, from what I gather from reading a couple of articles online, um, the the mantra of Trader Joe's is we don't advertise, and and we're not we're not really big into social media, which we would see as marketing. Um, we create good products and people come to us. Um, so so I it's they 
from from what I can gather in my quick looking of this online is uh, us doing that it was not going to res- give us any response anyway. So it's not just that they don't have good social media. It's that they actually don't value it. And I, and I suppose that's better than doing social media poorly, right? I, I mean I, that yeah. – but. But but I, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's a viable strategy in today's world. But I, but I, I want to then I want to talk about a company that I think does a pretty good job with social media. Yes, and uh, that is Publix. Yeah, and and I, yeah, and I recently started following them, and um, you know, I, and I'm I'm a kind of a. I'm not very good at Twitter. I, I just, you know, kind of go on binges where I like it's all I do, and then I I walk away for for days at a time. But. Um, uh, public said, uh, "Let's try. Let's try this for fun. Write us a public's haiku. Ready, set, let's go." And I think I think even that message itself is is a haiku, uh, with with the uh, hashtag public's haiku. And so, you know, I know I know public's. You know, we know uh, uh, Michael Roberson who works who works for them. Um, you know, their their food safety guy. And and so I said, "Oh, well, let me let me." I, and I like writing haikus. I think it's a, kind of a, a interesting. Discipline and it's not it's not too work too much work so you know five, five seven five syllables seven syllables five syllables that's the formula for haiku, and so uh, I wrote uh, I like uh, public stores um, and you know that's at with the at sign um, uh, they're serious about food safety for real and that's uh, you know five seven five and then uh, Publix uh, responded to me and said uh, you know thanks and and uh, we agree <laughs> so I I thought that was nice yeah that's see that that's a place um, yeah. It's it's different from Trader Joe's, not pitting one retailer against another, but they're they're actively trying to build some credibility that they're real people. Starbucks does the same kind of thing where um, I follow them and um, people will at tweet uh, Starbucks and they'll retweet it and they get into conversations and say, oh, we're sorry that your drink sucked. Here you go. You know, there, there's someone there that's actively behind this that uh, is the face of the organization on that on that platform, um, and and that's yeah, from. You know, I've, I've mentioned uh, Ben Raymond, my my graduate student, who's been working on social media and in food safety. Uh, the literature out there kind of dictates that that's what builds that builds credibility ahead of a problem. It's that this is a real person that someone's engaging, that someone is is already in. They're already in the in crowd. There, um, which makes it so if something bad does happen or they do want to get information out there, someone is. Uh, is already listening to them because they're already interacting. They're a real person. Corporations are people, Don. Yes, yes, this is true. <laughs> no, but it's it's you know it's funny it's funny how that um, they're a pretty good uh, example. And then Trader Joe's, I mean, like on purpose. Looking at their Twitter page right now, it says it's the official Twitter page of Trader Joe's. They're here to answer any questions you might have about TJ's in your neighborhood. They have had seven tweets. They follow 55 people and have 154 followers. Their last tweet was October uh, 22, 2012. Well, but why, why not have a page that says this is our official Twitter page? We don't do Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Don't Screw you. You know, don't follow. I mean, some, something like that. I mean, it's just like why – I mean, I understand that you know you got to have something so that people. I mean, it, I you know again, if you're not going to do it, have an account and then put a note on that account that says we don't do social media. If you want to contact us, here's the way to do it. But uh, that just sends a, that seems like what you just described to me is is a is a mixed message, right? It's it's saying we're here to do social media, but then other places they're saying, well, we don't do social media. So 
It's weird. It's confusing. Yeah, I like Trader Joe's as a place. Do you have Trader Joe's in uh, New Jersey? We don't. We don't. We have uh, we have Wegmans, which is which is awesome. Although they're not as good as at social media as Publix. I think I've tried to at reply them a couple times on some stuff, and they haven't responded. But we're getting uh, what's that other what's that other stupid hippie grocery store? Um, Whole Foods. Whole Foods. We're going to get one. Of those. <laughs> we're going to get. That's a whole category in my mind. Um, we're going to get one of those uh, near us soon. Not as convenient as the Wegmans, but uh, so yeah, I'm interested to see uh, what'll happen with that. Whole Foods, really good buffet lunch uh, options. Oh, Wegmans too. Really nice. Like it. Um, uh, Trader Joe's has got, I mean, it's a, it's a totally different style. It's like a whole different world. Um, I, I think I think I've been I think I was in a Trader Joe's once with uh, Linda Harris, who uh, <laughs> we haven't mentioned this in a while, but who uh, downloads the podcast but doesn't listen. Yeah, she's she's into that. Maybe she'll listen over the holidays. That's unlikely. <laughs> you know, she she like walks to work or takes the, the subway or something, the metro as it's called. Yeah, which is a really good place to listen to podcasts. I think so. Huh? huh. Should call her out on this some more. <laughs> Not on the podcast, though, because she doesn't listen. Right. And even if we post it on Twitter, she probably wouldn't see that. We'd have to do it on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So should we – so it's an hour in. Should we move to the show? I feel like we've been doing the show all along, Ann. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, so so uh, h- how about if I start off? Yeah. Um, so I was uh, I was gonna I, <laughs> in an effort to get fired up for the podcast. So you and I had some pre-podcast uh, texting back and forth. In an effort to get fired up for the podcast, I tried correcting some manuscripts, and uh, that worked for a little while. That got me a little bit angry, um, and then I had work went finished that manuscript, and I moved on to the next manuscript. But for that manuscript, I actually had to do some statistics and data analysis, and that actually I found that very calming. <laughs> so so my efforts to get fired up um, fell by the wayside. But then I looked at the first thing that I had added here, um, and now I'm all fired up again. So um, good. this Fine. is – yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. Um, so um, the, we have – you know, one of the things that we, we love to do on this podcast is to rag on our friends in the government – who try to do social media and try to do websites and try to do podcasts and stuff. And one of the, my favorite websites to get irritated with is the fightback.org website. And so, um, what, what fightback is, is it's, it's a consortium. I think it's a government consortium of folks that work together to kind of provide a uniform, uh, food safety message, which in, in and of itself as a goal is, is not a, is not a bad goal. Um, but they, but they just sometimes do things poorly. So the, 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 the website is fightback.org. It's the partnership for, for food safety uh, education, and they are um, a one-of-a-kind nonprofit that brings together public and private sectors to support health and food safety educators by making their work more visible, collaborative, and effective. At least that's what their uh, website says. And so they, I mean, and they do good work, and I've used their information, like when I give I give lectures to the general public, I mean they do have a kind of a nice simple message which which works um, in terms of communicating with the general public. But but uh, sometimes they're in their efforts to simplify they. 
they they get things wrong. So this is this is their latest uh, or the latest thing from campaign that I've seen from them. And of course, they have a, a, a humorous website called Fight Back, where Back is spelled B A C, and Back stands for bacteria. So we're going to fight food poisoning bacteria. Um, and their latest uh, their latest campaign is called Back Down. So again, sort of playing off that uh, that, that uh, B A C bacteria. So uh, and I'll just read to you from it. It says Back down exclamation mark so right away there's at least one mark against them right because they're using too many exclamation marks um and then they go they (laughs) they go on to write give bacteria the cold shoulder keep your refrigerator at 40 or below use a thermometer to monitor purchase a fight uh, purchase a back down thermometer kit here so so that's okay right i mean they're telling people to keep their refrigerators cold that's good they're going to sell you a thermometer kit i didn't look at the thermometer kit but hey you know i guess that's that's probably good. You know, I should probably look and see what the, what the kit looks like. Um, Got yeah. lines, thermometers, and 12 oh. information cards on keeping a refrigerator set to 40 degrees for below is important to food safety. Yeah. So whatever. I mean, those are, yeah, those are real cheap, uh, cheap thermometers. Oh, I, I guess the idea is they're going to sell thermometers to you and I to give out to people. Um, yeah, so 12 thermometers for $17, it's a cheap ass thermometer, but you know, whatever I've, I've had those, use those kind of thermometers before, but here's where it goes badly wrong. It says the bacterium Listeria monocytogenes can grow at refrigerator temperatures above 40. Pregnant women, young children, and people with weakened immune systems are at risk, greater risk of listeriosis for more information and blah, 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 blah. Um, I guess there's nothing wrong in that statement. It is it is a, a fact that the bacterium Listerium monocytogenes can grow at refrigerator temperatures above 40, but it can also grow at temperatures below 40. Refrigerator temperatures. Refrigerator temperatures below 40. It can grow at 39. It can grow at 38. In fact, according to the published literature, the organism can grow down to 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So while we do want people to keep their refrigerators cold, um, there and and maybe colder is better in terms of reducing listeria risk. Um, it's it's not a guarantee, and so you can have listeria growth at forty. And and certainly, I don't think we're we're ready to tell people that their refrigerator temperatures ought to be thirty two, because then foods are going to start to freeze, and people will. Object. I mean, I, I think you, they could have been much more effective to say that a variety of foods poisoning microorganisms grow at refrigerator temperatures above 40. So for best safety and quality, keep your refrigerator at 40 or below. And then, yeah, and then I, you really, I, to me, it's just you don't even want to mention Listeria monocytogenes because it just muddies the, the discussion. So anyway, that's my yeah, that's my rant. Um, but I think I think it's time um, to give our listeners some homework. Okay, I think I think that that the fight back website is really missing a, a huge opportunity here. I think I think there's a whole string of back themed puns that could relate to food safety. Um, you could you know back over your leftovers you could back up your cooking temperature you could we could have a thing about back streets uh, safe car cooking uh backdrop uh does the 5 second rule really work uh for preventing contamination with germs i mean you know there's just i mean 
you know, there's just a whole a whole host of, of, of really clever campaigns we could come up with all around this back theme. So uh, I would put it out there to to our listeners, Ben. If they're interested, send us your back themed puns related to food safety, and we'll collect all of them and uh, and and publish them on our website or talk about them on the show or, or something, something, something. I love it. Um, I will add in. Um, I'm gonna up the I'm gonna up the ante here, Don. All right. This is we're going off the board, as they say in the industry. Um, you don't know this is going to happen. We haven't talked about this. The one who you and I select, um, totally uh, judgment uh, uh, criteria based on how we uh, how much that makes us laugh. Um, wins a T-shirt, wins a food safety talk T-shirt uh, that will be mailed to them uh, at at my expense, not at their expense. So don't feel like it's like an Oprah situation where. <laughs> going to win a car but you have to pay the taxes on it it's really not much of a prize um no no cost to you you'll get a t-shirt uh if you make us laugh and an added layer here is i think i'd like to see something some people try something that are um that's song related like like a tom petty i won't fight back down um or uh back in black uh uh, so, you know, some some uh, some, some song related stuff uh, for added level of difficulty. And, and you know, and I would say too, you know, if you're not musically inclined but you are artistic, you could you could do your own brochure. I mean, just sh- show us your creative side. Absolutely. Um, I will, there's there's a t-shirt on the line here. And and hey, I'll throw in some magnets too, oh. <laughs> refrigerator magnets. Now we're talking. What we you know what we should throw in is a uh, we'll buy a <laughs> we'll buy them a set of twelve. Back down refrigerator magnets. Yeah, and that's okay. It's a prize package, including. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The call before midnight tonight. Yeah. There's, but oh, that's not all. That's not all. Um, so, I, not to. We're, someone's going to say we're a bash and fight back here, but not to do a, just a little bit more. Doesn't it miss. And I know it's hard to go back in time and change these things, but what about fight viruses? Like, fight parasites. Fight parasites. Fight. What, what about that? It, I mean, we focus on bacteria and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know what I would do to change it, though. Like, I guess, you know, that, that's the thing is I, we, you know, you and I and Doug and, and others, Christine Bruin's been really, um, uh, she's been part of this group, but it's also been really, really critical of uh, of the focus just on four um, uh uh, areas that cook, chill, clean, separate, and, and missing um, one of the steps on buying from safe um, uh, safe sources. <clears throat> it's you know it's okay for us to to bitch about it, but I don't know how I would fix it at this point. You know, I, if if so, if you and I had the 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 freedom and the resources to, to take the fight back pro, um, group or the fight back messages and to, to change it for better. I mean, some of the, the little things like the, uh, like the little stuff and, and the thermometers, but, but I almost think it's like, it, it needs to, it needs to have a reinvention. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. How- well, and I, if I, what I would say is I'd like to know, if I was, if I all of a sudden found myself as the executive director of Fight Back, not, not that I'm looking for a job, um, what would I do to change it? I'd have to look and see. I, I'd want a lot more data. Like what? 
where do they get the traffic on the website and what are the most popular things on the website and what are the what are the ways that are working to get people involved and what are the things that are not working and then let's focus on the things that are working and try to do more of them and yeah not be afraid to kind of go to go out there but see that's that's why I'm in academia and that's why I think if we did that they probably might lose some of their partners, you know, um, because if you're willing to kind of push the envelope a little bit and be critical or maybe risk confusing people with a little bit of like the complexity of the science, you might lose people that, that just want a simple message and want to be able to point to, well, we're doing this to help, you know, consumers be safe. So I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's one of those things where it's pretty easy to yeah, I'm sure quarterback it, but in, if you actually got right into it, you know how how uh, how hard would it be? I don't, I don't know, but I, I, yeah, I mean it's and I'm glad they're there. And like I said, I do go on their site and I do get information from them from time to time because it it is nice to have a simple message you can give to people. But I always start with that simple message, and then I. In fact, the both talks I gave where I, where I used information from them, I said, well, here's this food safety is simple. Here we go. And then I talked in one case, I talked about the uh, Salmonella St. Paul outbreak and I said, well, okay, so maybe it's not so simple. Right. Um, so I, I mean, I like the fact that they, they represent one end of the continuum um, and maybe that's the place for them. So I, I don't, I don't know, Ben, I don't know how to fix that. Yeah. I don't know either. I, uh, I look at the, um, there, there's some inconsistencies, and this isn't just fight back. This is everyone, um, you know, internationally that that I think tries to um, say that we need some simple messages, and, and consumers can't handle stuff. I mean, this goes to the piping hot in the FSA uh, in the UK saying, well, we'll just tell people to make, cook it to piping hot because people don't have thermometers. But also, on the, you know, on the other side of things is, well, you're not telling people that they should have a thermometer and that temperatures matter. Um, <clears throat> it, it's not simple. It's hard to make simple messages. And if you just made simple messages from the psychology and communication literature, those simple messages are, aren't going to change behavior because people think that they're too simple. Um, so I just clicked on, on their Twitter uh, feed uh, for Fight Back, and they've got um, going to uh, December 15th, which was yesterday. Um, and then two things that they posted yesterday. Defrosting food loves to be refrigerated. Never defrost food at room temperature. Thaw food in the refrigerator. And then the second tweet that they put out yesterday was, no time to thaw food in the refrigerator? Okay, here's a tip to um, for a quick thaw uh, online. And the tip is, food can be thawed in cold water, changing the water every 30 minutes to keep it chilled. If thawed in the microwave, food must be prepared immediately. Well, the first step of food can be thawed in cold water, changing the water every 30 minutes to keep it chilled is actually fairly complicated. It's not um, really all that sort of simple. And because you have a, a you know multiple actions here, you've got to take this food, um, identify that it needs to be thawed quickly, figure out what cold water means, put it in the cold water, change that water every 30 minutes to keep it chilled, and then take it out when it's when it's thawed. It doesn't require a thermometer by any means, but it's not a simple step because food safety and thawing is not simple. Um, the other aspect, so it's kind of like, well, we want a simple step, but it's really not. The other thing that I, that I kind of see is this idea of um, – Never defrost food at room temperature, which is a fight back US, USDA message. Only thaw food in the refrigerator. And, and this comes up at every holiday um, 
interview that I do when we talk about thawing frozen turkeys um, or thawing food in general is that each of the ways that you thaw food has some sort of a risk associated with it and goes back to our discussion about Trader Joe's and cooking stuff in the microwave. Um, If I thaw it in the cold water, well, there's a chance that there are pathogens on the outside of that uh, package. Actually, a pretty good chance if you look at um, the retail uh, literature on that, especially if it's a raw uh, chicken item. And uh, and then I might be getting uh, some nice spread of cross-contamination. I mean, I just am changing the risk. Um, If I do it in the fridge, I have a chance that I can uh, drip uh, juices. If I don't manage that correctly, I can drip juices below uh, to the the crisper or the vegetable drawer uh, below, you know, the bottom of my fridge. I mean, so some of the stuff is it's a bit complex. But the the thing that um, that Doug uh, has challenged people on and, and published a paper a few years ago, uh, well, ten years ago, probably now on thawing turkeys and Pete Snyder's talked about this a bunch uh, and has some data. Is that I mean thawing. You know, here's here comes the dogma breaker today, Don. Thawing on your counter is doable. It's complicated. It's not a simple step, but you can definitely do it if you manage the temperature and if you if you are actively trying to take the temperature to make sure that that outside um, food layer, you know, outside layer of the food doesn't go above. Um, um, you know, 41 for, for more than four hours, you can, you can definitely do it. It's just complicated. And then I look at this stuff and I say, but it's all kind of complicated. So why do we tell people one thing don't do and, and other things to give them the, you know, it's like we've made a decision or someone's made a decision that, well, all these things are complicated, but this one's a little less complicated. So end of rant, but yeah, no, yeah, I think, you, I think you, I think you make uh, you make a very good point. And yeah, I mean, we need to, if, if 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 people can thaw food safely on the counter and it's no more complex than thawing it uh, in the sink, then my gosh, let's give people instead of instead of telling people, well, don't do this, let's give them advice on how to do it safely. And maybe there's a maybe the best practice is thaw in the refrigerator if you have enough time. You know? Right. Yeah, it, I think that's a good way to put it. It's it's this um, tiered level of, okay, here's your best practice. Here's one thing that if you don't have enough time, here's a way to do it. And here are the things, if you're going to do it this way, here are the things you really need to control. Um, and, uh, and then a, um, if you thought, you know, this way, um, you're going to increase your risk. And, And I mean, it gets back to the, the philosophy that, that I have and I think you and I share and, and others in the world of extension shares, when someone asks me for advice, I rarely give them advice. I give them what the risks are and let them make the decision. Um, I'm just not a, I'm just not a, an advice giver, I guess. Yeah. Well, and you know, ultimately Ben, I mean, if you think about it and, and, you know, uh, think about something that I, that I tweeted recently with, which again, seemed to be kind of, kind of popular. I get, when I get upset, and we can and we can talk about other strategies for what to do when you get upset, um, like give your graduate students homework. But uh, I was trying to talk with uh, somebody about risk, and you know, ultimately, Ben, in this context, you and I are the risk assessors, or we possess that expert knowledge, and we're the communicators. But it's not up to us to manage the safety of the food in somebody else's kitchen. That's up to them. And so our job is to say, look, here's what the risks are. Here's are the risky behaviors. Here are the less risky behaviors. 
Now you go, you're the risk man. I'm not your risk. I'm not the risk manager for your kitchen, right? You need to go, you need to go manage the risk yourself, but now at least you have this information and you can make an intelligent decision. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the, that's a great, you know, systematic way to, to look at it is it, that, that builds credibility and go, I mean, fits into the whole theory of plan behavior model of not only am I not the risk manager, I, I, you don't want me to be the risk manager, <laughs> you know, like from, I recognize that because you have control, you have a choice here. I'm going to give you all the information that I have, and I'm going to communicate it in a way that, that lets you make a decision, that risk management decision. And, but, 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 but do know, you know, that, that we all want you to be the manager. <laughs> like we want you to have the control over this. Right. We want, we want to give you the right information and have you understand that information so that you can make the right decision. Yeah. For the right decision for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we can, we can close the parentheses on that. <laughs> I think so. Something you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, you want to talk about meat in your pants? <laughs> I want to talk about meat in my pants. I do. <laughs> um, and uh, there's something else I wanted to talk about. Was it in? Yeah, no, I want to talk about me in your pants. And... <laughs> okay. I, I just said that to be funny. I didn't mean to force you to go there. No, no, it's good. Um, so this, the, this could have gone into follow-up, but there's, uh, we've, and you'll see why in a sec, Don. Um, it, it goes back to me to the <laughs> discussion of which bathroom practice is riskier. And what's going on in your pants when it goes when it comes to when you have to wash your hands? And I think that was FST forty nine and fifty. We talked a little bit about this. So um, you sent a story over the weekend uh, about uh, someone in Canada, of course, uh, who in Prince Edward Island, uh, Jeffrey Arthur Fian, who was shoplifting, and this was in the Huffington Post, uh, and he was shoplifting, caught shoplifting meat, and he was putting this meat um, down his pants, and he was arrested for it. But the story, or the the headline and the story really focuses on what happened to that meat afterwards, which was that the company, the retail store, uh, which was um, the superstore, who is just you – know, so I can demonstrate my knowledge of the Canadian food retail sector. Superstore is owned by Loblaws, which is one of the largest um, uh, retailers in Canada, one of the big three. Um, the, the Atlantic Superstore uh, employees – um, watched him put his food in a basket, then take it into the bathroom where he stuck it down his pants. Uh, the attorney said, uh, or sorry, then it sounds strange. Uh, she said in court, and this is uh, related to uh, the prosecuting, uh, prosecuting attorney. Uh, her name was Valerie Moore. Um, because the employees put the stolen meat back on the shelves to be sold. And she said they must have been well wrapped in plastic given that they were down his pants. And, Going back to putting our risk assessor hat on, there are two things that come in, come to mind in this in this store. One of them is yes, it was down his pants, which seems like a problem. But two, which I actually think is a bigger deal, was he took it into the restroom. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing that it was down his pants, but maybe it was down his pants and it wasn't um, you know cold meat 
directly against your down your pants nether regions probably doesn't feel so good for most people but two taking a bunch of of stuff into the restroom where there may be a whole bunch of pathogens on the fomites uh in there or floating around if someone happened to be using the air dryer if there happens to be one is maybe a greater risk to me uh than the other thing but anyway i wanted to put this in here to say um my my take on it is I'm not going to ask you until after I tell you what I think is going on here. One is based on um, it, it was probably wrapped you know fairly tightly, and the fact that it was raw meat and there's probably a bunch of pathogens on it anyway. Putting it down the pant down your pants probably increases the risk to a negligible. Uh, you know, it increases the risk negligibly. Now, would I if I was the superstore put it back on the shelves? No way. It's gross. It's a yuck factor situation. And I really don't want to be seen in in the media or anywhere as not addressing that negligible risk just because it's it's not a good story to be in it like this. Does it actually increase the risk of someone in their home? Probably not. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree on you 100%. It's it's the yuck factor, right? It's disgusting. Of course, you're not going to sell that meat. Um, and in fact, if it's a package of raw meat that where the package is leaking, I'm worried about the risk to the shoplifter. <laughs> He's got salmonella in his pants now, potentially, right? Or Campylobacter. And and then, like you said, the risk of taking that package into the. In fact, the 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 risk. The risk to the consumer may be just as great by taking that package into the restroom as it is to the guy putting it down his pants. Again, we don't have details on exactly what kind of product and exactly where he stuck it down his pants. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's just there's a whole lot there's a whole lot here to to not worry about, and then there's a whole lot of like just just good public relations. Like the store shouldn't sell that. That's I mean, granted, it was. Um, $71.32 worth of meat. Now that's Canadian dollars. I don't know if that what that means in in a, in like American dollars, but that's a lot of meat, but but gosh, there's got to be a some way to recondition that or I don't know, do something with it, give it away to your employees. I don't I don't know. It just the whole thing is just it's mostly just funny rather than anything else. That uh just the $71 Canadian translates into uh 26 Tim Hortons double doubles. <laughs> uh large uh Double doubles. Uh, well, that's what they do. They take it to the Tim Hortons and they trade it for some double doubles. Timbits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, two two things that are great on this, though, just to close this one off. One is um, there. Uh, you know, this is not to uh, uh, to to joke about it, um, but uh, according to the the court case documents, that um, the individual uh, was suffering some for, from some addiction issues, uh, and he told the judges, um, uh, quote, uh, I realize drugs are not a good way to go about living, which reminded me of the classic um, Animal House quote of uh, young, drunk, and stupid, or fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. Um, and number number two is, this goes back to our social media public relations stuff, a store manager referred questions about reselling its crotch-tainted meat to the corporate media department, which had not yet responded to press inquiries. Damn it. What's wrong with people? Why can't they follow that? This is blowing up on, you know, uh, this, this came out on the 12th of uh, December. 
uh, and it's blowing up on uh, on social media, that your social media people, your media department needs to be able to at least get something out there that say, look, either this was against our corporate policies or it wasn't because we made some risk man- management decision. But you can't have like this stuff can't go to, to press without somebody saying something. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd agree with you there, Ben. So, so, so angry, Don, so angry. Well, you know what I've been doing lately to manage my anger? Oh. Well, I, um, and this, this may, this may work for you. Uh, I, I've had, and again, all the fault is all mine, right? Any, any fault from your, from your students is, is your own fault if you're, if you're any damn good. But, um, lately when a student comes to me with a question that I think that, they ought to know the answer to, or they do something that I think is just, you know, that it's like, oh my God, here's the same problem again. I, I've recently had the very bright idea of giving my graduate students homework assignments. And so, and, and in fact, part of this is inspired by you. You, you told the story about the, um, professor at Guelph who would give every student writing a, a thesis or dissertation would give them a case of beer. And then for every typo, that he found when reading the references, he would take one beer back and he's yet to give away a single beer. Is that, am I getting that story correct? Open surgeoner. The, uh, on my, uh, on my committee for my master's and PhD, I, uh, on both, uh, thesis editing or writing, uh, processes owed him beer at the end of it. You owed and him beer. I owed him so much beer that I just gave him a bottle of scotch. <laughs> Well, so I recently had a student turn in a dissertation or thesis that was not great. And so I just, as a way to kind of check to see if this, you know, what was up with this, I just basically cut and pasted those references and sent them to all of my other students. And I said, we're going to have some homework and here's a contest. See how many typos you can find. And of course they all found a different number of typos, but I think it made the point that this was something that, um, you know, was, was important for them to, to pay attention to. And then I had another student ask me about detection limits. Um, and it was a good question. Um, but in fact, the answer was very simple, but again, often if you're presented with a very complex procedure and then you're asked to figure out the detection limits, you start looking at all of the numbers and, and, uh, doing a whole lot of calculations when you realize that the answer in fact is very simple and you don't, and all of that is extra information that you don't need. And so, uh, I sent, I sent this paragraph of text to all of my students then. And I said, Hey, um, what, uh, what's, what's the detection limit? And a number of them worked very hard and they did lots of really complicated calculations, but they missed the point of it entirely. And then, and then a few of them uh, actually got it right. Um, and then the, the latest one is, um, uh, we have some old cultures, old microbial cultures laying around the lab and uh, I, I want to have them sent off for um, uh, for typing and uh, I, I pose this as a question to my students how do you manage cultures you know in, in the laboratory you know do you leave them laying around on plates or, or whatever and so that's the latest assignment I don't I didn't haven't got that back from them yet but but to me it's like it's like I got I get to this point in my lab where I have so many students and it just becomes hard to manage them. And I don't know, this is just my, my, I guess my lazy, passive aggressive way of trying to get them to, you know, hold up their end of the bargain. So I I don't know. It seems to be working out really well so far because basically it takes my, my anger and frustration and kind of directs it back out at them in in a way that hopefully doesn't come across as too angry or frustrated. And, and they, uh, I don't know, they seem to be engaging with it. Well, and I mean, I, I, I think at the, 
it sounds like at the the heart of this was to to pass some of that um, frustration onto them, but also could have this nice benefit of you giving them all together some sort of training on how you approach these questions. Exactly. Exactly. And there's like, and Michelle and I have talked about this writing. I have even have a draft manuscript started somewhere called how to write a paper and not piss off your advisor, which is like common mistakes that students make when they're writing a paper. And so maybe this is my way of kind of backing into, into getting started on that again, because I think that there's so many, just simple things that a student can do. If you've never written a paper before, here are some simple things to not do, right? Here, here are some things you can do to get this into, into the kind of shape when your advisor looks at it that, that they, won't, uh, they won't want to uh, you know, uh, scream at you and, and pound their fist. So, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a way for them to get, um, to get better at, at what it is that they need to do being graduate students. Yeah. Um, I like that idea. I think it's it's good. It's one of those things that, um, you know, you, as a graduate student, especially if you're going to go into the world of academia, you don't get exposed to management of writing for you know a whole bunch of people uh, writing things at different times too much. Like you kind of get it as on the job training um, once you get into a position. You know, things like budgets and all the um, administrative stuff. It's 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 kind of nice to sit back and look at the scholarship of scholarship. Ooh, that was better. As we as you go forward to to sort of say these are the uh, these are the things that um, you know the, that become important that uh, you know others have used to become uh, successful and and you know run labs and programs in a, in a good way. Right, and we we do that we do it to a certain extent with uh, seminars because students will give a practice uh, seminar and then we'll ask questions and then we'll I'll go through and, and the other students will go through and we'll critique their slides kind of slide by slide like too much text there, the aspect ratio is wrong on that picture, um, you know something 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 and 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 they get feedback on okay so this is what it, you know Dr. Schaffner thinks makes a good presentation or this is what my peers think makes a good makes a good presentation this works that doesn't work you know here are some of my vocal tics um you know here are some things i need to avoid when i'm giving a giving a talk or here's some things i need to do more of but i just i realized that we were never really doing that with uh with manuscripts so this is this is a way to and but again writing is a very sort of personal thing too like giving a seminar it's a public thing but but writing is more a personal thing so anyway that's what i've been up to lately well that's cool um, there's one more thing I really want to get to. Sure. And, the, and we're, we're closing in just so, so Anne's clear. She doesn't have to look at her, uh, at her watch on this about a minute or an hour, 33 minutes, uh, on the podcast. Uh, and we've gotten to a few points here, but here, there's one thing before we, we sort of sign off. Um, I want to talk about, which is, uh, this, this, uh, raw milk consumption, um, uh, paper that, that came out of uh, Minnesota Department of Health um, and was covered in Food Safety News. Um, and, and it's this paper that uh, it, it's the, the title of the paper is Raw Milk Consumption Among Patients with Non-Outbreak-Related Enteric Infections, Minnesota, USA, from 2001 to 2010. Um, so from the abstract, uh, raw milk has frequently been identified as a source of foodborne illness outbreaks. However, the number of illnesses ascertained as part of documented outbreaks likely represents a small portion of the actual number of illnesses associated with the food product. 
analysis of routine surveillance data involving illnesses caused by uh, enteric pathogens reportable in Minnesota uh, revealed that 3.7% of patients with sporadic domestically acquired enteric infections had reported raw milk consumption during their exposure period. Um, that, that's item number one. Um, item number two, uh, which I think is really interesting, is children were disproportionately affected and 76% of those less than five years of age were served raw milk from their own or relative's farm. Um, severe illness was noted, including HUS. Uh, but basically the story that came out on this and Food Safety News covered it um, a, a little bit and, and it really actually blew up my um, Facebook uh, feed and a little bit on Twitter from the food safety community uh, was that, hey, look, people say that they don't get sick from raw milk. In Minnesota, the data points to it's really underreported, so there are probably people that, that say that they've not gotten sick that, that are. Um, and uh, uh, the quote um, uh, that's, uh, that's in here from um, uh, Trisha Robinson, epidemiologist in the Department uh, or Minnesota Department of Health, was, um, the findings suggest that outbreak cases, uh, typically the only cases that get attention, represent only a small fraction of the actual numbers. Quote, this is something that is very generalized throughout the nation, Robinson said. The risk of raw milk is far greater than what's reported, whether you're in Minnesota or California or Pennsylvania. Um, so here's the uh, the thing, and I, and I keep coming back to this this paper that um, that was published in in Michigan, uh, it was either 2009 or 2010 that showed the trust and where people who drink raw milk in Michigan get their information. And basically that paper said, we don't care what public health people say. We don't care what academics say. You can keep hitting us with statistics. We don't believe you because you're not trustworthy to us and you're part of the machine and you're part of the system. So for me, while this paper gives us in the food safety world something to point at, um, it probably doesn't make any impact on those who we really need to communicate to. And, and, and that's, uh, um, it, you know, having the number and then being able to, to look credible and actually get to those folks who are, um, who already see that the benefit of this, this product outweighs the, the risk, even if we give them this type of information, um, that's, that's the challenge. It's not, the underreporting is really interesting and it, and it might matter as we go forward, but right now it's, uh, what, what's, what's still missing for me is, well, how do you get, how do you, how, how do we gain credibility with that group? Or more importantly, maybe we're never going to gain credibility with that group, but how do we gain credibility with the people who that group already sees as the, the voice of, uh, of risk? So I, I know you put this in the show notes. So I, I want—I I don't know if that was the direction that you wanted to talk about with this. So what are your what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, well, uh, I just put it in there because I just think it's it's fascinating. And I did a little kind of theoretical exercise on well, okay, so what what kind of around the the related issue of well, oh, so I get I buy my milk from a farm but they say that they test the farm. So okay, well let's look at the volume of milk. Let's make some assumptions about detection sensitivities and volumes of testing and dose response and 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 you know all of that. And and is it possible that a farm that tests its raw milk could could be making people sick and nobody would know it and the answer is yes. And so this is just kind of the epidemiological counterpoint to that or the, the epidemiological complement to that, I should say. 
that shows, yes, in fact, uh, you can have um, sporadic case, cases that are not linked to an illness, and, and indeed, people that drink raw milk do get sick. I mean, that's a that's a startling statistic, right? Uh, to say uh, that um, that three point seven percent of people with infections reported raw milk consumption. I guess I would. I would want to turn that around and say, okay, so what fraction of people that consume raw milk annually get sick? Um, you know, um, and I think you could probably back into that that same calculation. Uh, you know, with, with maybe with some assumptions, but um, yeah, I mean, raw milk is a risky food, and uh, I mean, people you shouldn't feed it to your kids for sure. Um, and again, there's there's folks out there. There's a woman whose, whose name escapes me at the moment that I've that I've talked with who was a former raw milk drinker whose kid got really sick and now she's a you know she's an, an advocate for pasteurization of milk um because she she saw that the effect that it had on her family so you know on the one hand i think people if people want to drink raw milk they should be allowed to but i think that they they should be a, kind of like if people want to thought chicken on their counter it's the same argument right it, but let's let's tell people what the risks are and then they can make their own decision but but boy i mean this is uh yeah so again again you know kudos to the folks at uh, minnesota department of health for once again leading the way and doing uh, and doing good work i mean this is a fascinating uh, piece of work um and and good for them for for doing it and and yeah that the in, that interesting um article that you talked about uh, motivation for pasteurized unpasteurized milk consumption in Michigan uh, 2011 that was published in food protection trends in in 2012 and we will uh, we will link uh, link to the um, I don't think you can we can link to the article I think you have to be a subscriber to to download it but um, or you have to, yeah, maybe you have to yeah, be a member and sign in. So we'll link to that. But then there also there was a, a piece that covered the same article um, in uh, NPR's uh, The Salt blog. And so we'll link to that as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, th- these pe- people want to drink raw milk. And, you know, like I said, I think that they should. But, but boy, uh, it's going to be hard to reach them. And I, don't, I don't know how, we, how we, would, we would reach them except maybe, again, by talking with farmers um, about the risks. But, but again, I, I'm, I'm not – I'm not so sure that the farmers want to hear our message either, especially yeah. if they're making money selling raw milk. Well, yeah, and I, that's the conundrum, right? Like that's the the, the situation is we can kind of, um, I don't know, beat our chests and point at this and say, look, 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 more people get sick than this than we thought. Um, but we have to figure out a way to be credible to that population. And uh, l- let me give you a, you know, sort of last example of, of someone who really did this, not with raw milk, but with the Hispanic population going back to listeria illnesses um, associated with um, um, case of Fresco. Fresco um, and in uh, Washington State is uh, one of our former extension colleagues, um, Val Hilliers. And I don't know if you... Um, if you worked with Val at all on anything, Don, I, I started an extension after she had already um, retired. But when I was in graduate school, we exchanged a bunch of emails and I had a chance to meet her um, on, a, on a trip to Washington State uh, one time before I, before I started here at NC State and had a really huge conversation with her about this project that she ran called the Abuela Project. Um, where she, you know, intuitively recognized that a bunch of extension educators or, or extension agents marching into a population um, like a Hispanic population where, where people are concerned about 
you know, INS and, um, you know, uh, illegal, um, you know, immigration issues and deportation. Someone walking in there and saying, hey, look, um, we know you've got all these issues, but really what we want you to do is um, is, is focus on milk uh, or raw milk and, and this cheese. This is something that's keeping people uh, or getting, making people sick. It, she she kind of recognized that that was in her team recognized that that probably wasn't the greatest approach because they didn't have credibility with them and there were there were this level of distrust with anybody who was associated with the state government so she started working with um, uh, people within that community who were seen as uh, in leadership positions and uh, or as the voice of uh, a voice to be to be listened to when it came to health, and one of the uh, one of the groups was you know was, uh, sort of elderly, um, uh, not elderly, but uh, women um, who are uh, I, I don't know elderly is probably whatever the word is w- women women who are or seen as grandmothers um, had a lot of credibility with that group, especially with anybody who was making cheese. So she said, "All right, well, we're going to train them. We're going to talk to them about." what the risks are and hopefully they can transfer that information, but we're not going to go straight to the population because it's a waste of waste of our time. They don't trust us. And I just, I mean, this is another one where, yeah, we have a great piece of information. This, this piece of information doesn't change the fact that raw milk is risky or has risks. I mean, it's, we we may know a little bit more about the underreporting of those risks, but we've known for a long, long time, I mean, going back to the history of IHFP, that this this product's risky. We just have to figure out a better way to get at the people that that are, you know, that are drinking it with that risk information. So I guess that's the that that was the disheartening part of this whole thing. Was it's great to see this this information out there, but it still doesn't. It's one more tool in the toolbox for a group that we can't get to. So, so how useful is it? Well, but no, but then thanks for bringing the story uh, to Val out. And I, uh, I, I, I do, uh, do, did know or do know Val and we would meet at IAFT food science communicator meetings. And, and yeah, she was uh, again, a real sort of traditional extension person with that real sort of helping people mentality. And, and this, this Abuela's project sounds fantastic. I mean, it's exactly what, a what, what an extension person should be doing. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the, um, Minnesota people, I mean, it's not really their job, right? Their, their job is as public health, uh, epidemiologist to do this investigation. Well, the next step is what we need to do is to figure out, okay, so who are the abuelas for these raw milk drinkers in Minnesota or wherever, right? So who are, who are the abuelas in, in North Carolina or in New Jersey? Who are the people that are going to, uh, have that credibility? And then how do you, what I, what, what's missing to me from the Val Hiller story is how, what were the mechanisms because you don't just walk up to these, you know, um, Latino grandmothers and say, "Hey, look, we're going to do this program. You're going to help us, right?" I mean, so it's yeah. Once you have the idea, that's part of it. But then part of it is working, is finding that audience. Those, those in this case, those abuelas. And that was a title of an episode, wasn't it? Abuelas of social media. Um, uh, find those find those abuelas and 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 work with them. To say, okay, look, this is what we want to do, and that is, you know, that is really hard to do, and that takes a lot of time, and you might not even be successful, but but yeah, but that's what we need in terms of these this 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 raw milk uh, situation is we need people, um, but but even then, you know, with the case of Fresco, they had they had to develop a recipe that was acceptable, so I don't know, I don't know what the equivalent is with raw milk drinkers because we don't. 
I, at this point, we don't have enough science to say, well, okay, what we ought to be doing is encouraging farmers to do X, Y, Z. I don't think we even know that yet. So we're not even, even if you had the idea to do a Val Hiller style project, I don't think we have everything we need to make that happen yet because we don't know who those advocates are and maybe they're the farmers, but we don't know what to tell them. Right. I mean, and maybe, maybe we're getting better. Maybe, maybe we are, maybe there are some extension people out there that are working with farmers that want to sell raw milk. I suspect not. Um, but, but that would be the first step is to say, okay, so what, what's the difference between a dairy that sells raw milk that makes people sick and one that doesn't. And I guess maybe the, uh, the, the, there were some folks out there that would say, well, they all make people sick. Right. But again, we, but we don't really have the data. So yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, certainly getting good epidemiology like they did in Minnesota is a place to start, but we have such a long way to go with that. Uh, I don't, I don't know what necessarily what the next step is. And I mean, this, it brings up a really fun point, which you and I talked about, Way, I don't even know what episode, but way, way back because there was some raw milk stuff that was going on at Rutgers and um, you have one of your graduate students go sort of cover and write something on that. And here, here's what, you know, and I don't even know if I'm going to look up this um, with Minnesota, but um, the fact in certain states that this product or raw milk, raw milk sales are illegal gets pulls um the extension world out of the mix altogether right like so in in a place like south carolina where or uh state of washington where raw milk consumption is is, or raw milk sales are legal it's a regulated product there's sampling there's testing going on it allows for um an extension agent to get in and say here's the or extension to get in and say here's if you're going you're going to drink it um, here's the best way to do it here, you know, to, to get to that point on the, what's the recipe, what's the right thing to do in a state with like North Carolina, it's, um, an uphill battle to go through the extension world, uh, to say, okay, first of all, we know that people are drinking raw milk and we can't just tell them don't drink it cause they don't care. They're going to drink it and they're, and we're not the right people to tell them that. How do we actually push the needle on safety here? in a, in a framework where the product itself is illegal, you know, it's, it's like needle sharing and, uh, and and all the, the excitement that goes on along around that where, well, it's an illegal process. So we can't, we we don't want to get into the, the world of making it safer for someone who is, you know, clearly has an addiction, um, to, to get safer needles. So they're not giving themselves other public health concerns. Not that, not that raw milk is an addiction, nor is it like a needle. Um, but you know, no, no, but, but the thing is that you have someone who is doing a quote unquote illegal activity and you're trying to make it safer for them. So it, it, there is an analogy there. Yeah, it's exactly it. So, so I think it's easier and, or or a better way, you know. The more and more I look at raw milk, I'm, I've, I move away from the dogma that we can't do it. We the, that making it illegal fixes it because it doesn't, and it clearly hasn't. Um, but the I, I you know I don't know the answer. You get into this whole messy area of well. Well, if we make it legal and we regulate it, then we are giving some legitimacy to the to the industry. But yeah, it gives us some control measure because it gets people outside of you know trying to do it in back rooms and shipping it up from South Carolina and all that kind of stuff. 
So I don't know. We need we need a we need a, a bunny Colvin to make us a raw milk Amsterdam. Oh, <laughs> the wire. We need raw milk Amsterdam. <laughs> um. So, but but you know, like I mean, I think that's a really interesting. I think the Abuela project works because the public health outcry was large enough that you, know, you and there was it, it was not so much. Um, commercial consumption, but trade within a population that was, you know, families and communities where this is a different kind of, kind of thing. And it's just at the, the central location of, uh, of where food safety came from. Like there's something real special about raw milk that gets people all in a bind. No pun intended. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, again, we only have to look to the, um, the, you know, IAFP and and its formation and some of the you know some of the stuff we talked about in the early history of of the association. I mean this yeah this I mean milk was one of the very first foods that had a mandatory treatment and and it seems to have had a phenomenal public health effect and you know it's like a pendulum it's swinging back the other way. Yeah yeah totally. Um, just as a real time update here, Minnesota. Law allows for the sale of unpasteurized milk as long as it occurs on the farm for which the milk is produced. So they are a, a regulated um, industry within Minnesota, which also puts an interesting take on it. You know, um, they're looking at illnesses in a state where there's not a, you know, w- well, there might be a black market, but it is a legal type product that has some sort of uh, level of um, oversight. Right, right. So it might be look you know different in other states where it's where it's regulated differently. Yeah, well, and I think the place to start would be in a, in a state where it is at least somewhat legal. It would be the kind of thing that I think would be very difficult to do in in New Jersey, for example, where you cannot sell raw milk, but would be maybe possible to do in the state like uh, Pennsylvania, where I believe it is possible to buy raw milk in one form or another. Well, cool. Well, I think that's a show. That's a show, man. It's a so our holiday. This was our holiday spectacular, by the way. It was. Um, we didn't even talk about holidays, other than my Christmas, my handbell um, <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, cool. Well, Don, as always, thank you for your time and for engaging me with such a great conversation. Um, uh, and for our listeners. Um, we mention this every time, but do, if you have, uh, like what we're doing or don't like what we're doing, like Cheryl did, um, send us feedback, uh, make, um, recommendations, send us ratings and reviews, be part of the show, jump in. Um, the more stuff that, that you give us, uh, to talk about, uh, the better the show is. So we appreciate Cheryl and, and her time, um, from the American Spice Trade Association to send us on that information. But that's, uh, that's the, the core of what we do here is we want to have a dialogue. It's called talk for a reason. Talk. We want, we want to talk about stuff. And, um, you know, the, the more the listeners give us, uh, and, and call us on stuff, the more fun it is for us. Absolutely. It makes it way more interesting than just talking to each other in a vacuum. So please, uh, as Ben said, uh, please do reach out. Uh, rate, rate the show in iTunes. Uh, if, tell us what you think. Send us feedback. Uh, see us on the interwebs. Um, let, us know what, let us know what you think. Absolutely. Well, all right, Don. Thanks a lot. Have a good uh, holiday, and uh, we'll, I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye. Bye.
Yeah, so I didn't record anything there. Okay, well, I think I recorded everything. Perfect. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. There's still something weird going on with my uh, with my call recorder um, in the workflow that we're using. And I went into I went into the workflow in the Dropbox and and modified it so I could remember what to do next time. But there's some like it's when I, when I make the MP3 for Andreas, uh, sometimes it strips out one side of the conversation. So I, anyway, uh, hopefully that will all. Uh, like I, I, I don't remember what I did to solve the problem, but it's uh, it seems to be fixed now. Or I was able to fix it last time, and I wrote down what I did. So anyway, it you know with the workflow. So good, good. Um, oh, and I guess audio is yours on the next one, right? Yeah. Or I mean, if you want, if you want to throw this file into Dropbox, I'll I'll do the audio for this. Oh, oh, right. No, no. Let, let me get. No, that's that. That's right. I forgot about that because you don't have the audio. So yeah. No. Let me. I'll, I'll do the audio again. So. Yeah, I'm cool either way. Like the audio is the. I mean, to me, is harder. Like there's more steps to it. Oh so. yeah. It's de- well. It's definitely yeah. It definitely takes m- potentially more time. Um. You know. I mean, especially if, if Andreas is doing such a wonderful job with the show notes. But yeah. Let me let me do that. Let me let me uh, fix up the audio and then uh, you can you can you can do show notes. Um. And and I I've still got to do the audio for the last episode as well. Yeah. And I'll do this. I'll post them up this afternoon. Great. Um. So we'll be ready to go. Fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. Weird. I haven't. Uh... I've been having problems with this MacBook Pro. Hmm. It's not old, right? Uh, it's, it's weathered. Hmm. <laughs> is it the hard disk pretty full? No. No, hard disk is not full. It just, I, I think it was, I think, I I know I dropped it at one point. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things, like, since then, it's given me pinwheels every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that the call rec- or the Skype bounces on for a while. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that I've clicked on calendar and it's not doing anything. Have you um, have you gone in and repaired permissions on the hard disk? Not recently. Yeah, you should probably go do that. That's a good point. Yeah, I uh, I mind was in a uh, neoprene case in my backpack, but it fell off my bed in Baltimore. Uh, and, and I, th- I think the computer's okay. I think I, I dropped it once before and now it kind of creaks a little bit when I, when I open the screen. But the worst thing is when it fell, it, it must've fell on the zipper of the neoprene bag. So now it's a, like a, I have to wrestle with the zipper on the bag to get it closed. So, but anyway, I guess I'd rather have the zipper get hurt than the laptop. Uh, yes. <laughs> Doug, Doug uh, called, uh, sent a message, which you probably saw. Saying if they're wrong, you should write something. Oh yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> were you were you tweeting during the show? Were you tweeting during the show? Yes. Were you? Oh. I saw your retweet of Doug's thing. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I should write something. So, yeah. Um, he also sent me he's a message about extension sucks, <laughs> <laughs> and it was and not in a good way. Michigan State University Extension, who is repeating the fight back. Yeah, not <laughs> apropos. No one likes invited guests, especially ones that can cause foodborne illness. No, but no one does. Does I? I mean, unless they're those invi- uninvited guests come with you know beer and uh, food. Yeah, some invited guests might be cool. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if you were an uninvited guest. You dropped into my house. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but just by saying that, now I now I'm an invited guest. There's a standing invitation. 
<laughs> I'm getting in my car right now. Perfect. We'll see you soon. <laughs> For real. No. <laughs> yeah, it is warmer down there. I, uh, I, I was, I was looking at, I was talking to my son, uh, apropos nothing. I was talking, well, weather, I was talking to my son who lives in Denver and, uh, Denver is weird because it, it gets warm during the day there. And I was, I was looking at, it's like, oh, I wonder what the temperature is. Cause he, he, he called me when he was out riding his bike and he was taking a break and we were talking on the phone and I looked at the weather. It's like, Oh, it's, it's pretty nice there in Denver. And then Chris, Kristen later asked me, so what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? I said, Oh wow. looks like it's going to be really nice. It's going to get up to 55. And then she talked to me this morning. She said, what, in what world is it going to be 55 today? And I was like, Oh, huh. I, I must've been looking at the Denver forecast, not the freehold forecast. So anyway, it's pretty cold here. It says here that we can go get pot at the corner store. <laughs> what? Well, because it's Denver. Oh, Bob, right. sorry. Uh, <clears throat> um, oh no, it's just the, I'm looking at I'm looking at the Denver corner store, right? De- Denver corner store uh, tweet tweet updates. Should I stop recording? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, hold on. Oh wait, wait, no, yep. did you already stop. I did not stop. Okay, because we always have to we we don't want to hard like out, so we have to let's do our let's record our out. And then it's out, or I don't know. <laughs> I've just made things super awkward and and hard. <laughs> so, so Ben, this ends this ends the after dark. So I will talk to you on January sixth. Okay. All right, Don. Talk to you on January sixth. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>